Yeah, it's fascinating because I think, you know, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of both. So both the kind of what you mentioned in the Eureka moments, right? Like in the shower on a Sunday and you're not thinking of anything. And in that moment, you have that one thing that you were looking for for five weeks, right? So it's kind of like it, it just happened and it happened, right? Because you gave the brain a lot of information probably before and now you gave it a little bit of space to actually make sense out of it and connect it right? and, and and that's why you know <laughs> a couple of friends of mine who are into this whole high performance thinking what they do is welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can the whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Christian Bush. Christian, I want to go back to, well, anybody who missed part one, please go back and, and hear about his PhD and his startups and, and all sorts of exciting stuff he's done in life. But uh, I was excited to have Christian on the show because of the title of his book, uh, The Serendipity Mindset. And it's it's a... Uh, something that's been really helpful to me in life, but it's something I want to get even better at. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the idea of kind of like return on investment of like when some, when you bump into some great idea, getting the most from it? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it relates to, I think what we talked about earlier, what is a good filter to understand if something really fits into our current idea of what we want to be in life, what we want to do in life and, and so on. And something I found extremely useful in that regard is really, when you take a you know piece of paper or a serendipity journal and really somehow try to understand what is it at the moment that really gives me meaning, gives me purpose, that's important to me. So in a way, writing down the, you know, if there's a North Star, or I think especially when someone is in a transition period or so, it might not be a clear North Star, but it might be principles or values or something that's important to us at this point in life or interests or something. And, you know, ideally then, like serendipity in a way fits into those brackets and gives us an idea of, of how that actually helps us improve our life in, in that regard. And if it doesn't, I think that comes back to our parking lot idea to say, no, 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 at the moment, this doesn't fit in here. And, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've been thinking about this also in the company context because, um, you know, colleagues of mine, for example, they did experiments around how if you incentivize people to spot serendipity. So imagine the situation we talked earlier about the potato washing machine. Right? The potato washing machine was all about the idea that you had people in the company, in a, in a company that produces refrigerators and washing machines, spotting the unexpected use of a washing machine where farmers were washing potatoes and then essentially said, oh my, we can build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine and reach many more farmers while doing that. Now, you need to somehow incentivize that serendipity spotting, right, to really have some kind of effect so that people don't just spot it, but then nobody does anything with it, and it's a failed idea. And so essentially, you just wasted the, the, the kind of time and, 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 and also energy of people on these kind of things. And so in this one experiment, they uh, took a team and they said, you know what, for three weeks now, just look out for unexpected information, whatever you come about. Whatever data you see, if you see something, you know, like that farmers use their potatoes, write it down and think about what does it mean for our business? Does it mean that maybe we didn't understand that there's a much bigger market than we expected? Maybe we didn't understand that, you know, we have a completely different target group, whatever it is, and then write that down. And then after three weeks, we sit together and we, 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 we really talk about and discuss it and, and see what comes from it. They then essentially saw, you know, how serendipity starts to, 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 
happen over and over again because people have an incentive now to actually think about it and talk about it. Obviously, not all of us can, can do that in, in that regard. So I'm actually a big fan of small things of, you know, in meetings, for example, asking people what surprised you last week? Was there anything last week that was unexpected that didn't fit our assumptions? And is there something in there? And I think that comes to your earlier point of how a lot of this is related to design thinking as well, in the sense of, how do we test our assumption here? Do we test our assumption? And that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that we failed. It doesn't mean that we weren't able to plan. It just means that we actually created a culture that allows us to do more of this. So I think the return on investment a lot of times comes from understanding how do we build that into existing our own processes, values, interests, but also company routine processes that doesn't take anything away from it, but rather adds to it because it's so integrated into what we're anyways doing. Yeah, you know, as soon as you say that, that makes so much sense. And I think for me, initially, I think about like financial incentives, right? But in organizations, like there's so many other kinds of incentives. It can just be recognition. It can be, you know, like it can be a dumb, a dumb prize, like for a different, for a different subject, like this was an incentive just to like be good to your coworkers. I heard this story about Yahoo in the early years. You know, they had that logo with that big purple chair, right? They went and got some of those made, like, I don't know, like 10 inches or some, some, some like decent sized thing, right? And when one of your coworkers did something really great, like above and beyond or whatever, you could go find the, the purple chair, whoever's desk it was, go take it off their chair and go put it on your coworker's chair. It's like the reward. And then what happened is everyone would come, like everyone when they'd see it, they're like, oh, what'd you do to get the chair? And it like, it gave them this chance to brag about themselves, basically. And it like became this, this reward thing. And and it was, it's, you know, like, it's this gift to give to give each other. And like, you know, you I guess you have to pay to get the chair made once. But after that, that incentive is free to the organization, but it increases the happiness and joy of everybody there, right? It's such a it's such an interesting example, because that's what it is, right? How do you celebrate people for it? But also, how do you give people an excuse to talk about it, right? And to, to, to potentially have even more happen like this. And you know what came to, to mind, actually, one of my favorite practices or, or in, in companies is, is the project funeral. And, and you know, the, the, the thing here is that, to your point, I think it depends so much on what is the existing culture we're in, right? So if you're in a hyper-competitive culture where people don't want you to succeed, I can imagine that that person who got the chair next to them, you know, potentially speaks differently about their achievements than in a culture where like people help each other out and like they want to shine in front of each other, right? And so I found it fascinating in a culture that is more kind of uh, positive and proactive, what I found very useful in, in that culture is actually the, the, the post-mortem or project funeral, which is essentially saying, hey, how do you, you know, whenever projects don't work, because we tend to celebrate successes, right? We tend to celebrate the things that go really well, but actually the real learning and the real trust comes from things that didn't really work, right? And so, so how do we grasp on, on these kind of things? And so this is really about saying whenever something doesn't work, the person who's responsible for it, the project, the idea, whatever it is, presented in front of project managers from other division and says, this is what we learned from it. So it's not about celebrating failure. It's about celebrating the learning from what didn't work. It's about celebrating experimentation. And so in this one example of, of this company, they, they had this window frame and the idea was that the light wouldn't reflect, right? So an amazing technology, but the project manager laid it to rest and said, look, we didn't realize the market is not as big as we thought and people don't pay as much money. So we're laying it to rest and that's that. Now someone in the audience goes like, hey, hey, have you considered what this could mean for solar? Have you considered if you take that technology into a solar context, how much energy that could absorb? And that is how, quote unquote, coincidentally, their solar division or part of their solar division emerged. 
where they saw, wow, we can actually use this technology in a completely different area. And so the point here is that they created a practice where they incentivize serendipity to happen because they're saying an idea is not bad or good. An idea just is bad or good maybe in a particular context. But if we allow people to bridge between different contexts and so on, we actually make it more likely that something emerges. And more importantly, we also build trust among people. Again, I think you need a certain threshold level of trust, right? So you can do that better in, in companies that already have some trust, but also then in hyper-competitive cultures, there's a lot of other stuff. But I, I, it came to mind though when you talked about the chairs, because I think there's so much in there in terms of how do we incentivize people to talk about the good? And then also how do we incentivize them to talk about the things that didn't work and, and, and inter integrate that into the company? Yeah, no kidding. Well, I'm loving these stories. Tell, tell us another serendipity story. <laughs> well, one of my favorites is, is TEDx Volcano. So TEDx Volcano, essentially, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember this, it was a very European thing, but there was this volcano that broke out in, in, in Iceland, and it has this huge, huge ash cloud, right? So it was a huge ash cloud, and in London, where I was at that point, all flights were grounded. Nobody got out of the country by a plane. Okay, yeah, I remember that. Um, right? So it was a huge ash cloud, like parts of Europe were, were shut down in terms of um, flights and so on. And I received a call uh, on a Saturday morning. I, you know, I, I wasn't a night out the, the night before, was extremely sleepy, had this unknown number popping up on my, on my phone. And I was like, yeah, whatever, let's see who, who that could be. Pick it up. And so there's this guy on the, other, on the other side of the line. He's like, this is Nathaniel. We haven't met yet, but mutual friend, mutual sandboxer uh, gave, gave me your number. And, you know, I'm Nathaniel. I'm currently, I was at the Skull World Forum, which is the biggest forum for social entrepreneurs and, and kind of people who are in social impact in the world. And he was like, look, I, Nathaniel, was at that conference in Oxford at the Skull Forum. And I, like all the other people, we're all stuck in London. Like we can't get out of the country. And, you know, we are just here. So I want to organize a conference. I want to bring everyone together and make the best out of it. They have all their schedules cleared. So all these amazing people are essentially <laughs> free and bored, right? So let's bring them together. Yeah. Within 30 hours, he organizes TEDx Volcano, which, you know, full-fledged conference, over 10,000 people on the recorded live stream, people like Jeff Skold speaking, like one of the most successful, cool, local TEDx events um, that I've ever seen in my life with essentially no resources because he got people excited, right? He went to TED and said, let's turn challenge into opportunity. He went to the local hub spaces to get space for free, volunteers for free and, and so on. Long story short, you know, everyone had the same event happen, which was there's a volcano and everything's being shutting down. But actually Nathaniel connected the dots and said, you know what, there's something in that moment that I can do with it. And so he created that kind of situation. And so I'm a big fan of, of that story because I think, you know, it's those kind of quote unquote bigger incidences that don't happen that often, right? But also then the stories we talked earlier, they are the more day-to-day -day ones. And I think that's what serendipity is about, right? You have the, the, the big moments, but also then the small moments. And I think um, that's one of those stories that's more about um, really seeing that in every moment, there's always some kind of opportunity in there. You know, I would be interested in your thoughts about the role of human emotion in serendipity. Because I think about reactions, I think about the transfer of enthusiasm, and I think about like, you know, basically like most of my successes in life have not been due to my hard work. It's not due to me being smart. It's like me being like the glue between the money and the smart people or something, you know, like it's been, it's, and emotion is like such a, is such a part of that. Like it requires the magnetism and the enthusiasm and the things like that, it feels like sometimes to deliver on serendipity. Do you have any thoughts about this or do you see it differently? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I feel 
part of this I can say, you know, in, in this forum here, in terms of the scientist in me is like, there's a there's a spiritual side to it that, that you know, we should talk more about over a glass of, of wine. And then there's the kind of more scientific part, because I think there's there's fascinating research, right, when it comes to quantum physics, how energy travels, how, in a way that there's a lot around how you know, when you think about how even even in, in molecular chemistry, how, how interactions happen, right? Like in a way, you need some kind of energy, you need some kind of ground force for things to interact and for things to, to, to happen. So absolutely, I think there's there's a lot to that kind of energy part, right? That's towards the outside. And then I think there's a lot towards the inside, right? The, the inside in terms of what is holding me back in terms of my self-limiting beliefs, the things that make me feel drained, um, not mm-hmm. ready, the imposter syndrome, like all these different things that in a way potentially al- don't allow us to connect with people in the way we would ideally want to connect, right? And so I'm actually a big fan of, of, of working on these deeper self-limiting beliefs that we have. So being that, you know, in my case, for example, for a long time, it used to be fear of rejection, um, imposter syndrome. There's still a small imposter somewhere in there who's, who's uh, consistently coming out, you know, and, and really working on this. And, and one of the things I found really interesting about it is reframing situations, right? And saying, if I sense there is something in that conversation in the coffee shop and I feel, oh no, but like I'm afraid of rejection, I'm afraid of whatever it could be. What I've realized is no, that's not the worst outcome. The worst outcome is not someone saying no. The worst outcome is walking outside and having this nagging feeling for five days that one should have talked with that person, right? And so the reframing of that we usually regret the things we haven't done or the things that, that we could have, but we didn't, like really reframes the situation and takes a little bit the risk off of saying, no, actually I can do more of this. And so to, long story short, to your point, I think emotion plays a huge role, um, but I think also we need to give ourselves the license to, to in a way get our amazing kind of energy or whatever we have down there, out there into the world. And I think that takes inner work a lot of times because we need to allow ourselves to, to connect with others, right? I think in your case, you do it intuitively, right? You, you probably intuitively connect a lot of dots and, and put yourself out there and, and so on. And I think others probably have to work on how do I get to that point that I feel really comfortable in that kind of, you know, boundary spanning. So you went a totally different direction with that than I thought you were going to go, which is really interesting. See, I thought you were going to talk about decision making. Like serendipity is only good if you do something with it, right? Like, you know, and like you, you like the, the brain science around how like, you know, all the Harvard people used to say humans are so logical, you know, in the 1950s and stuff like that. And then like in the 90s when they prove, no, it's the limbic system of the brain that lights up last before a decision is made. So it's almost like the way I, I sum that up and possibly incorrectly is it's our emotions about logic is how a decision gets made, right? So it, it's not just enough. It's not just enough to recognize an opportunity. We actually have to have desire around it. There has to be some sort of emotional draw towards it. Like most of us know we should have gotten up and gone to the gym this morning and drink eight glasses of water, but knowing it isn't enough, we have to have that, that emotion to move towards it. But to me, where you end is really interesting. I think about imposter syndrome and like my version of imposter syndrome, I describe it as like having a cardboard cutout version of ourselves that we wish everyone believed in. You know, and it's like, it's like we put all these like things on display. It's like the the Boy Scout badges of like Jess's of Jess's acceptability. Like, oh, I I drive this kind of car, or I went to this kind of school, or I do these kind of crazy action sports. So that means that I'm valuable. Please don't kick me out of the cool kids club or whatever. You know, and and I think about times where I have not executed on on opportunities that have presented themselves unexpectedly. And you're right, it does have a lot to do with my self-belief and it has to do with, I, I didn't really, 
anyways, I'm just processing this right here, thinking about like how much of my own self-image or my self-belief changes whether I do something with those opportunities. It's, it's an interesting concept, yeah. right? Absolutely. And, and you know, that's actually something, one thing that I found extremely interesting in that regard is to say, you know, to literally take that serendipity journal or whatever it is where you can write down some notes and really say, what are the incidences in my life where serendipity happened? And what is the pattern behind this? And how can I do more of this? But also, what are the incidences where I felt certainly could have happened, but it didn't, and I knew it. And and so really writing down what is the pattern behind that, and what is it that usually held me back? And I think that's a, a beautiful mechanism to really say, oh, it seems to be always in meetings that have these two people. And why is it because of these two people? Oh, they remind me of X, Y, Z person. Okay, that makes sense. Now I can work on this. So it's really this kind of idea of really working on these granular what is it that's really holding me back? And I found that fascinating because I think all of us have it in some way, right? Some of us are more explicit about it and, and are open about it, but I think everyone has it. And and it also beautifully links, I think, to your, to your earlier point around what I found fascinating, especially with, with very senior executives. A lot of my work is, is with CEOs of, of large companies. And a lot of times, you know, they will tell you a huge, amazing, wonderful story of how rational they made their decision of why XYZ big company opened an office in XYZ country. But then, you know, after the third glass of red wine, they will say, yeah, you know what? I woke up, my daughter told me something. I was like, yeah, you know what? We should have an office there. Let's do it. And so the point here is that a lot of times, right? Like people have a, a gut feeling for something and then they post-rationalize it and then they, they come up with a story of why it was so important to do it at XYZ. And, you know, that's all of us do it, right? When we present our CV to like a new employer, we will be like, yeah, and I wanted to do this and then this and this. Yeah, but maybe you met someone at a conference and then they told you about this job and then you did that and whatever, whatever right? The point here is that we, we, we assume that so much can be planned and so much is about like putting things in, in motion in a very kind of clear, planned way. But actually, a lot of times it's, it's gut feeling, right, that, that leads us into certain directions. And to your earlier point around emotion and in this case, gut feeling, I found it fascinating that when I look at what differentiates someone who makes bad decisions from someone who makes good decisions, a lot of times it's like naive gut feeling versus mature gut feeling, right? Naive gut feeling is like, it's like the more fight or flight, someone's just reacting on impulse, right? Oh, like, you know, I, I, I need to put 5 million on this, like, I don't know, like, like Bitcoin because I just feel this and like, I should do this, right? If you have never traded Bitcoin before, that probably is just a naive gut feeling and you're putting it because your peers just made a lot of money with it and you want to do it now as well. Versus if you are someone who has seen patterns and has recognized patterns, so they in their mind have certain pattern recognition and then essentially learn to trust their gut, that's the ideal, right? That you're saying, you know what, let me listen to what my gut says because my gut has far more information than the brain could ever, you know, make sense out of or our conscious might, might, make, might make sense out of it. So let me somehow listen to my gut and then get all the information I can get to somehow have an informed gut feeling and then make the decision like as a mixture between the two. And I think that's what all these executives do, right? They say, I have a certain gut feeling here. Let me learn a little bit more about this and then I'll make this decision. But I think I'm, I'm actually veering towards this and this decision here. And, and I think, you know, that's why they invented consultants partly, right? Because they said the consultants can give me an excuse of why this all makes rational sense now. But actually, I just had that feeling that I, I wanted to go there. Anyways, long story short, I think informed gut feeling is, is extremely helpful when it comes to serendipity because it allows us to understand a little bit more how can I see something in here that makes sense and that relates to something in my life that, that I would love to have more of. You know, do you know this book by Andrew Smart called Autopilot? Have you heard of this one? No, not yet. 
So it's it's about the discovery of the default mode network in the brain, where I think they had people in fMRI machines, and they're saying, like, okay, think about this. And they're trying to say what part of the brain thinks about different things. And then when people weren't thinking of anything, their machines were going off, and they thought they were broken. And what they figured out is, like, there's these parts of the brain that light up. When we're not, when we're not using up brain power on conscious thought, there's this other part of the brain that lights up and starts synthesizing all the information we've been taking in. And it just goes through like how many like scientific discoveries were made when somebody was on a walk or sitting in a garden or like, you know, think about how many of us have great thoughts in the shower or something. Right. And, and what a role sleep sleep plays in the default mode network of synthesizing these things that have come up. And uh, you kept talking about like a mature gut feeling. That's what I thought. It's like genuine insight versus a versus like a like a fresh excitement that you feel like doing. And I, I liked your criteria, these ideas of like, it made me think about like Warren Buffett and the circle of competence, you know, like how risk comes from not knowing what you're doing. And so like asking myself, have I spent some time? Do I have references? Have I like, have I, have I paid the dues to be able to have a mature gut feeling about this is kind of what I feel like you're saying. And anything you'd add to that? Yeah, it's fascinating because I think, you know, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of both. So both the kind of what you mentioned in terms of the Eureka moments, right? Like in the shower on a Sunday and you're not thinking of anything. And in that moment, you have that one thing that you were looking for for five weeks, right? It's kind of like it, it just happened. And it happened, right? Because you gave the brain a lot of information probably before. And now you gave it a little bit of space to actually make sense out of it and connect it, right? And, and, and that's why, you know, a couple of friends of mine who are into this whole high performance thinking, what they do is before they go to bed, they read through all the things, all the things they want to solve, right? Because they are like, okay, I'll let my brain work when I sleep. And like in the morning, it will have figured something. It actually can be surprisingly helpful how that works, but it's obviously not the best recipe for really good restful sleep, right? Because you might wake up a couple of times during the night. But long story short, it's exactly to your point of how the brain is fascinating and how it tries to connect the dots by itself almost in a way if we give it enough information that it can work with and then second to your point like i think that the intuitive or the, the mature gut feeling comes a lot from essentially training ourselves it's like a muscle right it's a muscle where we're essentially if you look at successful startup founders who have to make decisions like this and you take an immature one versus a mature one you will see that the kind of decisions they make are just different because they know in XYZ situation, usually XYZ things work better. If you cross the street, right, you would always look right or left in some way, even if, if there's nothing, because not only because you have a gut feeling, but because that's just a pattern, right, that's out there. But long story short, I think it's fascinating to think about how do we train our gut feeling to be more mature and by giving it as much information as we can and so on. But also then how do we give the brain as much information and the space by you know, meditation, walks, whatever it is that actually allows the brain to also anchor that information in some way. You know, I think my my favorite terms for that that you use were um, an uninformed gut feeling and an informed gut feeling. Because there's ideas when I, I get this flash of something, but really it's like I'm just in love with my own new idea, right? Versus the other times I get the flash of something but I can recognize the dots it's connecting. And so I can have a bit more faith in it because it feels like an informed gut feeling. It's not just me being fascinated with my own good idea, you know, being impressed with it because I came up with it. You know, I, I have some reason to believe those other ones. I, I have some reason to believe that it's a gut feeling worth following. And it's like, I think I could turn uninformed gut feelings into informed ones by following them up with research. 
you know, but to your point of like, never traded Bitcoin, should I put all 5 million down right now? You know what I mean? Like, just kind of, I like that it's back to the decision tree thing. Like, it's helpful to me to think this or, hey, is this an informed gut feeling or an uninformed gut feeling? And if it's, if it's uninformed, is it worth putting in the effort to make it an informed gut feeling? You know, it's kind of yeah. where that leads me to. And that's, you know, I feel that gets really interesting also when thinking about, you know, when I think about the things I really regret in life, usually they were based on fight or flight, right? They were based on listening to a gut feeling, but not understanding it well enough, like not understanding that it was pure fear that was in there versus, you know, like really vision or, you know, it's this old thing, like, do you make a decision based out of fear or out of vision slash love, right? And, and I think that's really, a lot of times I feel like, you know, for, 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 for everyone listening, I, I feel like that's something where I've seen that work in a lot of startup contexts with, with founders, you know, that, that, that literally ask themselves that, that one question, right? Is this, w w which place does this come from? That, that gut feeling, does it come from, do I take this investment now because I'm just scared that we will run out of money and we will be dead and it brings up all these existential fears, but actually we could really make it work. It's just kind of like my uncertainty avoidance here that's kind of really fearful. Or is it really out of vision that there's not the right person I want to make business with, I want to deal with, and let's take someone else. And I think, you know, that kind of small heuristic, I feel in my life has avoided now a lot of mistakes I made earlier on in life where I was a lot of times more driven by that gut feeling that later on turned out to be just like a fight or flight, you know, fear feeling versus no, this is actually legit and and, and to your point, more informed by the actual choices and, and also informed by understanding oneself, right? I think that's the big part also to to have an understanding of the world, but also to have an understanding of oneself in terms of what is it that gives me fear? And if I know that this gives me fear, let me talk with two other people who might be less anxious about X, Y, Z and see if that actually is, is, is a, you know, something that, that I should, should think about more. So to your point, I think it's a fascinating point to think about how to develop a mature gut feeling that is really aligned with who we are and, and learning more about ourselves as well. You know, that made me think, I, I was thinking about the same question myself, like, I was asking, as you were saying that, I was asking myself, when, what are the, what was going on when I made decisions that I regretted the most, you know? And so often it was either like fear or trying to please people. Instead of doing what I actually thought I should do, I was trying to please others and, or, or fear and anxiety, right? Instead of trusting myself, instead of what I actually thought I should do. Or the other side is arrogance, like just arrogance in my ideas. My idea is the right idea and I'm not interested in listening to anybody else. Instead of like having the humility to say like, I should listen to all the ideas. And if this is still the best idea, it'll still be the best idea at the end of listening, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I feel like fear fear and arrogance are the source of most of my biggest regrets. Well, listen, where are the best places for people to find you online? On Twitter, that's at Chris Serendip. On Instagram, it's Dr. Christian Bush. And the homepage is serendipitymindset.com. That's great. Well, I just put the book in my in my Audible wish list. Hopefully, everybody else will go check it out as well. And thanks for making time for the interview here. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Okay, bye, everyone.